The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's no precedential judicial opinion, right, on the immunity doctrine. But it's been asserted by the executive branch, you know, very robustly, at least in, this, in the present form, since, you know, for at least 30 years and, and arguably longer. And so it takes for, for OLC to sort of change what it views as the constitutional prerogatives of the executive branch. It takes a lot more than a district court opinion or even two. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 17th, 2022. In the course of the January 6th investigation, Congress has voted to hold four Trump associates in contempt and refer them to the Justice Department for prosecution over their failure to comply with subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Today on the podcast, we caught up on where those cases stand. Steve Bannon was recently found guilty of contempt. One case, that of Peter Navarro, is still moving forward in criminal court. But the Justice Department declined to charge former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Trump aide Dan Scavino. Why? A recent filing by the Justice Department in civil litigation brought by Meadows may have some answers. To discuss, I sat down with Jonathan David Schaub, a contributing editor to Lawfare and an assistant professor of law at the University of Kentucky J. David Rosenberg College of Law, and Mike Stern, former senior counsel to the House of Representatives. We talked about where the various cases stand and why, and what to make of the Justice Department's filing, spelling out its understanding of the doctrine of testimonial immunity for close presidential advisors. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 17th. Catching up with the January 6th Contempt of Congress cases. I want to start with a general update on where these different Contempt of Congress cases stand. So we have the Steve Bannon case, where, of course, Bannon was recently found guilty of contempt. And there are also three other Trump aides who Congress referred for contempt prosecutions. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows uh, and senior aides Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino. Mike, could you remind listeners of which of those cases the Justice Department decided to move forward with? So they obviously moved forward with Bannon, uh, who they have prosecuted, and as you mentioned, now convicted. They are also moving forward with a, they have indicted uh, Navarro, and they're moving forward with the prosecution of him, which I believe is scheduled to 
uh, go to trial sometime this fall. And then uh, they declined prosecution of Meadows and Scavino. As far as I know, there's no public information about why they made that decision to those. Presumably there's a declination memo somewhere in the Justice Department that explains why they decided not to move forward with those two contempt cases. But I think we have to engage in some speculation in order to uh, come up with a reason if we're in the public. So Jonathan, you and former Lawfare Associate Editor Rahini Kurup had written at length in Lawfare about why the decision to move forward with a Navarro prosecution, but not Meadows or Scavino, was puzzling. And there's some of this may be revealed in a, a filing the Justice Department made recently in civil litigation uh, with Meadows. But before we get to that, can you walk us through why you and Rohini were initially puzzled by the question of why the Justice Department chose to prosecute those two cases, including the Bannon case? Sure. So, you know, the there's a doctrine within the Justice Department and particularly within the Office of Legal Counsel known as testimonial immunity, which basically has asserted that, you know, close presidential advisors are immune from compelled testimony before Congress. And so Meadows' lawyer had raised this as, as well as others had, had brought it up, some of them talking about it in the context of privilege. Um, Scavino had, had raised this. Initially, you know, it seemed the declination might be based on the Justice Department's conclusion that Meadows and Scavino, as sort of close presidential aides, enjoyed that immunity, but Bannon did not because he was not in the White House at the time uh, of the events in question. And so you know, that was sort of an open question. What did the department think about Meadows, what did it think about this doctrine of immunity as applied here to a former advisor, to a former president with the overlay of January 6th and the compelling need of Congress to gather information? And then I, and then to prosecute Navarro, it was a bit puzzling because Navarro was also a senior White House aide. So when that came down, the question was how the Justice Department was distinguishing between Meadows and Scavino, close White House advisors, uh, and then Navarro, also a close White House advisor, and why prosecute you know Navarro but not the other two? And Mike, before we go any farther, I, I realize there's something that we should clarify, which is why is it that the Justice Department gets to choose whether or not it wants to bring these cases, or at least from the Justice Department's perspective, it gets to choose? Why, why is there that kind of intermediate step between Congress referring someone for prosecution and the prosecution happening. And from your perspective of someone who's a scholar of Congress and has worked in Congress, is that the way that it should be done? So the uh, statute under which these referrals take place says that when Congress uh, refers a matter to the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, that the matter shall be uh, presented to a grand jury. Congress's interpretation of that language, which is pretty straightforward, uh, is that that's a mandatory, that the U.S. attorney has to present it to the grand jury. However, the uh, Justice Department has not seen it that way. And specifically, it has taken the position uh, over many years that where an executive branch official is the potential 
a target of the uh, contempt prosecution that the executive branch, the president, must retain the discretion not to prosecute in order to vindicate certain separation of powers interests. So that if, for example, and the classic example would be an executive branch official is directed by the president not to testify based on executive privilege, and Congress then holds that individual in contempt, the Justice Department has said not only is it not required to prosecute in that situation, but in fact, it would be unconstitutional to do so. That that would infringe upon the president's executive privilege to hold the official who is merely complying with the president's direction in, in contempt for that purpose. Yeah, just to follow up briefly on that. So the the memo uh, written by uh, Ted Olson in 1982 on this question, sort of the first time the Justice Department laid it all out, it also relies on this idea that, you know, Congress can't in a statute, even one that is signed by the president and enacted into law, can't force particular prosecutions to go forward. So the mandatory language, the shall present it to the grand jury, interferes with this sort of core idea of executive power, which includes, at least in OLC's view, in the sort of view of the robust presidency, the power to decide when to bring a prosecution and when not to, this sort of idea of prosecutorial discretion. And in in OLC's view, Congress cannot interfere with prosecutorial discretion. And so the executive branch gets to decide, ultimately, when a prosecution goes forward. And so as, as Mike said, this is particularly in the context of assertions of executive privilege. They have said you can't go forward because it would sort of violate the separation of powers as well as infringe on the privilege. But also true uh, in cases in which the witness has asserted a Fifth Amendment right. Uh, the department has declined prosecution saying the witness had a, a valid Fifth Amendment claim against self-incrimination And although Congress had referred for contempt and the statute says shall prosecute, the department would exercise its prosecutorial discretion, you know, not to prosecute. So a lot of this comes down to the sort of fundamental idea that it is the executive branch that decides when to prosecute, no matter the statutory language, even if it's mandatory, that Congress can't infringe on that ultimate authority. Right. And I think that that gets to something that is really core for listeners to understand, which is that a lot of what we're talking here sounds pretty technical, but it really gets in a a very sort of core and fundamental way to how the executive and the legislature conceptualize their own constitutional powers and their own relationship with each other. Um, So before we dive into this new Justice Department filing, there's one more thing that I want to clarify to kind of lay the groundwork. Jonathan, can you, so we've talked about testimonial immunity. Can you explain where that comes from and how it is related to, but distinct from executive privilege? Uh, Sure. And, uh, you know, Mike, feel free to jump in. Uh, Mike and I come at it from, I, I learned about this and sort of worked on it in OLC and I know Mike is coming from sort of more of a congressional perspective, although I think we ultimately have a lot of agreement. So this doctrine, it it actually comes from uh, a kind of hypothetical uh, memo that uh, William Rehnquist, who was later the chief justice, wrote when he was asked about subpoenas, sort of Congress compelling testimony of presidential advisors. And he went through a couple of historical examples where presidents said, 
former President Truman said, I'm not going to show up. I don't have to show up. This would violate a sort of Congress's role, uh, an advisor, a presidential advisor. And so Rehnquist sort of laid it out. He says, I think that there is this immunity that goes beyond privilege. And so privilege says a witness doesn't have to answer a particular question because it's privileged. But he said there are certain advisors who are so close to the president, who help the president on a day-to-day basis, that they don't have to show up at all in response to a congressional subpoena. Although he said his conclusion was sort of tentative in the way he describes it. Uh, it's not sort of a firm constitutional doctrine that it, it appears to be today. But that's developed. So this was in the you know, early 1970s, and it's developed across administrations to where I think every administration – uh, in the past you know, 30 years has at some point said this individual is a close presidential advisor uh, who is immune from congressional testimony. So you can subpoena the individual. And if, but if it's about that individual's official duties, they don't have to show up. They don't have to assert privilege. Executive privilege is a balancing, right? So Congress could overcome a, an assertion of privilege if it has a compelling need. But with immunity, it's not balanced. It is just an absolute uh, doctrine that says I will not come and give testimony, even if privilege wouldn't apply. The Obama administration asserted it. The Trump administration asserted it multiple times, including the impeachment inquiry. And it basically cuts off all avenues of congressional inquiry into the testimony of senior senior advisors. Yeah, so I, I agree with that description. It begins, like Jonathan says, as more of a pragmatic kind of negotiating position on the part of the uh, executive branch, that these are officials that we don't want to be routinely testifying before Congress. They normally will have a lot of privileged information, and so they won't be very useful for Congress to subpoena them. We don't want them distracted from their duties and so forth. And then it hardens into this kind of constitutional dogma somewhere around, I would say, the Clinton administration. And then it starts to get expanded out so that it's not only current advisors to to the president, but former advisors. And then, as Johnson mentioned, in the Trump administration, it was even applied in the context of an impeachment investigation, which is really a much further step, although the OLC did not seem to recognize it as such, because the reason it seems to me to be such a major step is because you're basically saying you have a constitutional uh, standard for impeachment, and yet the people who might very well be the most significant witnesses to high crimes and misdemeanors are now off limits based on this entirely made up doctrine of testimonial immunity. Yeah. And so I'll add one more thing and I'll put on my sort of OLC hat a little bit because, you know, when I was at OLC, we worked on this issue and it, it kind of comes from this expansion of the White House, right? So if you, if you go back to sort of historical times, we talk about executive privilege, you know, the 1800s and you can trace times when the president has withheld information the president didn't have these the sort of White House advisors, right? The, the cabinet officials were his advisors, the people in the agencies. And as the government expanded, the White House did as well. 
And really, it's in you know the 30s and 40s when you start to have this creation of the White House, and it gets bigger and bigger. And you have this, these advisors who are not confirmed by Congress. They're sort of supposed to help the president directly. And there's a lot of literature around this time within the executive branch, uh, particularly during the McCarthy era, where the president and his advisors are saying, you know, this presidential White House is kind of off limits to Congress, right? This is the president's sphere of operation, his constitutional operation. Congress, you have yours. You have the speech and debate clause that protects you and your aides from inquiry into sort of your legislative activities. And this White House sphere is really off limits to Congress. And that's where this immunity doctrine sort of comes from, is this idea that Congress shouldn't be able to just sort of one committee chairman issue a subpoena and make the president's closest advisor, his chief of staff or his national security advisor or her national security advisor show up and and answer questions. And that there's got to be some separation between the executive branch and Congress that preserves some sphere of confidentiality and activity within within the White House. And so that's that's sort of the fundamental idea that I think this immunity is driving at is that the close presidential advisors the Congress really doesn't need that information. Almost everything they would say would be privileged anyway. And so they are sort of outside the bounds of, of Congress's authority to to subpoena them. All right. So with that background on the table, let's talk about this Justice Department filing in this Meadows case. So to clarify, I think it's important to keep in mind, this is not criminal litigation. This is a civil lawsuit filed by Meadows against the committee, the January 6th committee, trying to block the committee from obtaining various documents. Jonathan, what is it that the Justice Department is saying here? And why is it that it's so important? So the Justice Department, the bottom line of the filing is the Justice Department saying that Meadows is is not immune. And so this is the first time the department has come out in a public filing and said, you know, a, a former advisor to a president here, the chief of staff, so the president's closest or one of the closest advisors is not immune and 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 has to or would have to respond to the subpoena. And they they justify this by sort of invoking all of the old opinions and saying we still adhere to this view that close presidential advisors are immune. And they actually reaffirm what Mike referred to. There's a 2007 opinion that says former advisors are immune. This was in the context of the firing of U.S. attorneys by President Bush. And they wanted to question Harriet Myers and Karl Rove about this. And there's a very short opinion that just says former advisors are immune too. It doesn't have very much analysis in it. Uh, the Trump administration built on that and expanded it with Don McGahn, who was the former White House counsel to the president, and and said he was immune, building on these past precedents. So the filing says, yes, former advisors are immune to sitting presidents, current advisors are immune, but Meadows is not an advi- not a former advisor to a sitting president, right? He's a former advisor to a former president. And so the department says in those circumstances, some of the rationales for immunity, like uh, the ability to harass the president by calling aides over and over again, the uh, the you know, privileged information that might come out, some of these are lessened 
they're still there, but this sort of separation of powers problems aren't as great when the advisor is to a former president. So we're going to have a balancing test, a qualified immunity, it says. And given the compelling need of the January 6th committee, uh, for the same reasons that the department has not invoked executive privilege over many documents related to January 6th, the department says Meadows not immune. So the, the need of the committee overcomes um, any qualified immunity Meadows would have, and he was, would have to respond. So it sort of knocked out the idea that he wasn't prosecuted because of his immunity. The department says he wasn't immune, and so he did have to respond to the subpoena, leaving again the sort of puzzle about contempt. And Mike, I want to go to you in a second, but before I do, Jonathan, how big a deal is this statement on the part of the department? Is it like a little bit of a change? Is it a sea change in how the public should understand testimonial immunity? How do you read it? I mean, I think it's it's not that big of a change. And, you know, this has come up before where in the, the incident I mentioned with the firing of the U.S. attorneys, so Harriet Myers and Carl Rove were former advisors. They were subpoenaed. There was an opinion holding them immune that was litigated in court. And during that time, President Obama took office. And so that case ultimately settled. But the department was dealing with the same issue at that time. And I'm sure some of those discussions and and influenced this position, because this is not something they've ever opined on before. So this is not a sea change in the immunity doctrine. It actually reaffirms all of the past precedents on immunity, but it does allow for, you know, an investigation into a former president to have more weight. Congress has more authority to call, you know, former advisors if it can make this showing of need. So you might say this is not that big of a deal because January 6th is is such an extraordinary event. This is kind of a one-time only, you know, you have to comply card, similar to the way they've framed executive privilege. Like because of January 6th, your qualified immunity is overcome, but it's never going to be overcome again in the future. So it's kind of hard to know how to read that. But I, I think to me, this is a, a, a slight modification that allows there to be some balancing when you have a former president, but not a sea change really. So, Mike, you wrote an analysis of this filing on your blog, Point of Order, which I'd, I'd recommend that uh, listeners read and we'll, we'll link to in the show notes. And you described the Justice Department's reasoning as, and I am quoting here, full of crap. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, is that not self-explanatory? <laughs> so my feeling is that what they have done, and this is sort of what they were accused of doing by uh, Meadows' attorney as well, uh, is they've tried to find the narrowest possible path to not having to say Meadows is absolutely immune because they recognize that saying that, apart from being contrary to the wishes of the current president and the position of the current administration, is just ridiculous because the idea that so here you have mark meadows he was the chief of staff to president trump so he clearly falls within the category of individuals who are entitled to absolute immunity under the justice department doctrine Uh, but he is being subpoenaed to talk about efforts that he was involved in to overturn the election right discussions with the president 
perhaps regarding the fake electors, regarding the uh, effort to replace the leadership at the Department of Justice, the speech on the ellipse and the potential for violence, the march to the Capitol, all of those things, some of which are arguably more official than others, but clearly is far from the sort of garden variety reason that you would want to protect the testimony of a senior advisor, right? So so if you go back to the Rehnquist memo, the kinds of things that Rehnquist was thinking about was Congress wanting to subpoena Henry Kissinger, who was the national security advisor, to come talk about the administration's policies uh, in Indochina or what or whatever. And the position that Rehnquist and the Nixon administration took was, look, you can call the Secretary of State. They are the ones with the official uh, responsibility for carrying out U.S. foreign policy. They are the ones that you know, are the proper ones to come in and talk about these policy matters. You shouldn't be able to subpoena someone in the White House who is really giving you the president's inside uh, inside views about these things, which are covered by executive privilege and is in, in a way an attempt to, to get the, almost like getting the president himself to come in and testify. This is very, very different. This is a fact witness to potentially criminal matters or matters that are not, these are not policy discussions that we're talking about. This is not what the committee is interested in. It's interested in learning about serious misconduct at the highest levels of government. And that is not uh, the sort of thing that testimonial immunity, it's not a situation where testimonial immunity makes any sense at all. The problem is that the Justice Department's position as it exists now is, yes, Meadows, because he happens to be the former advisor to a former president, doesn't have absolute immunity and therefore can be uh, made to testify if you make the requisite showing. But if Trump were still the president under the Justice Department's position, Meadows would, would, would still be absolutely immune, whether he was in the White House or not. And and that just makes no sense to me whatsoever. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service 
back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So Jonathan, I, I want to give you a chance to weigh in to either uh, defend OLC's honor or further criticize it. <laughs> well, that's a tough choice. Uh, it's always, uh, you can always do either, really. But 
I mean, I, I don't think this is – I will disagree slightly with Mike because I don't think they, they created this position just for Meadows. I, I think this is something that existed already internally that is sort of – had been thinking about, and there's a question. It just had never actually arisen where they had to put it in, into paper. But I do think what Mike is highlighting is what I've written about as sort of the problem with the immunity doctrine itself, which is that it's this absolute doctrine. And if you go back, so so Rehnquist has this testimony around the same time as he wrote his memo where he says the reason for the immunity is that everything would be privileged. Um, and so he sort of grounds it in this idea of privilege and that if you subpoena a witness to show up, there are some rare cases where if everything the, related to the subpoena would be privileged, they don't have to show up. But then after that, it, it takes on this kind of idea of you can't take away the president's advisors. And there's some of this in Rehnquist's memo as well, that he the president needs his advisors 24 hours a day. And so after the uh, Clinton v. Jones case, where the Supreme Court said even the president has time, right, to sit down and to be deposed, or um, th- that you're not going to distract the president, OLC had to drop this idea that the advisors were too busy to be subpoenaed. And so what they've turned to is this idea of you need to protect privilege and this sort of free-floating independence and autonomy of the president where it could turn into harassment. And the latest filing draws from the, the Mazers case where the Supreme Court talked about subpoenas to the president, even for private information, as potentially harassing and something to consider. So I, I do think there is a danger in just saying, yes, if Congress issues a subpoena, a presidential advisor has to show up every time and because it could turn into harassment, it might be, it's, it's likely to be in today's environment for political gain and not a real inquiry. They could probably get the information from somewhere else, like the Secretary of State. Uh, so I think that's the danger they're guarding against. But the problem with the doctrine is it's an absolute doctrine. So in unlike privilege, when there is a real need, like sort of Mike's description, if President Trump were still the president and Congress were, st- were trying to investigate the events of January 6th, so you have the same need. OLC would say Meadows is immune. Um, And I I think the doctrine needs to allow for some balancing of the congressional interest against these, what I think are legitimate concerns of the executive branch. But as, as sort of articulated now, it doesn't. It's an absolute doctrine. And it gives sort of, no matter how much the need there is, no matter if that witness is the only witness who can provide the information, still doesn't have to even show up. And I think that's that's the problematic part of it to me. So one of the striking parts of this filing, I thought, is uh, a line and then a, a footnote on page seven where the department says, and I'll just read this, uh, presidential administrations of both parties have consistently taken the view that a sitting president's immediate advisors, current and former, could not be compelled to testify before Congress about their official duties. And then it says, we acknowledge it, We acknowledge that some judges have disagreed with that view and cites a string of opinions by judges in both the federal court for the District of D.C. and the appeals court in D.C. essentially saying, we don't agree with OLC here. And notably, I think it's worth pointing out, one of the judges that they point to uh, was then District Judge Katanji Browns-Jackson, who is, of course, now on the Supreme Court. I, I found that paragraph quite funny because in, in a way it's kind of the Justice Department saying, yeah, yeah, we know that some judges have disagreed and then pointing to 
every judge who has weighed in here essentially saying, uh, not so much. I'm curious what you both make of this sort of disagreement between the Justice Department and the judiciary here. And Mike, let me turn to you first. Well, I think it was pretty remarkable. Uh, I think the House made a point of this as well in their brief that the Justice Department's only response to these opinions, there are four separate opinions, uh, two district judges and then two appellate judges writing for themselves only, but all four of which basically say, no, there's there's no such thing as testimonial immunity. And the two district court opinions, which, as you mentioned, includes uh, now Justice Jackson, go into great length about why there's just no basis whatsoever for this doctrine. And the Justice Department's response is basically, well, yeah, we understand some people disagree with us, but we've been saying this for a long time. So we're going to keep saying it until uh, either the Supreme Court or uh, maybe, you know, the D.C. Circuit tells us we, we're, we're wrong. And without any response to the to to the arguments that were made in these judicial opinions as to why the reasons given as to why they were just full of it, <laughs> full of crap, and and, and they just uh, d- don't address that. And I I pointed out in my piece that Judge Jackson, in particular, was very harsh in her discussion of this doctrine, in which she dissected at great length and basically said, there's just nothing to this. This is just something that OLC has made up. It's a fiction that OLC has made up. And they think that just by repeating it, um, administration after administration, that somehow gives it more weight. And it, it doesn't. It's still, you know, something without any basis in law. And, you know, the Justice Department's position, uh, response to that, I guess, is something like the shrug emoji uh, they're just going to keep keep saying what they're saying until an authority that they recognize tells them they can't. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is yeah, it's surprising to people. I think if you understand how you know OLC works and thinks about its mission, it's maybe not. These are there's two district court opinions, and then there's just two opinions. One's a concurrence that was on the merits, even though it was, the case was dismissed on justiciability grounds. And then the, the, the second is, you know, was not, again, was a, just a judge writing for herself. So I, there's no precedential judicial opinion, right, on the immunity doctrine. But it's been asserted by the executive branch, you know, very robustly, at least in, this, in the present form, since, you know, for at least 30 years and, and arguably longer, and so it takes for, for OLC to sort of change what it views as the constitutional prerogatives of the executive branch. It takes a lot more than a district court opinion or even two. Uh, and I, I, can, I think I can say without revealing too much that, you know, when I was at OLC and working on these questions, I think there's a general consensus that we would probably lose in court on the merits of the immunity question. And that it'd be more likely the best chance would be for the court to adopt something like a qualified immunity. Uh, you know, Judge Bates, in his original opinion in the Myers case, he went all the way to say, you know, no qualified immunity either and rejected that in, in, in a thorough opinion. Of course, he was appointed 
by the president who was claiming immunity. So he's not uh, sort of a, an adversary, but he thoroughly rejected it. As, as Mike said, uh, Jackson did the same. But I think for OLC to actually change and to say to a president, right, you don't have this authority, even though we have said for you know, 30 years that you do have this authority, despite the fact that there's never been a, a presidential opinion that would sort of force us to change this, this view uh, is, is something that I think it takes a lot. And I don't know that there are examples of OLC doing that. Maybe there are, but I, I think there are, there are sort of few and far between. It's is why I wrote after the, uh, on my lawfare piece, after the McGann litigation was settled, the case that Judge Jackson wrote in initially, that Congress really missed an opportunity because they clearly were going to get an adverse opinion about immunity, adverse to the executive branch. They were, they were going to get an opinion that said there is no immunity here if they could have pushed it. And the Biden administration, despite you know, being a new administration, didn't want that. They didn't want that, right? They want to, the executive branch interest is in preserving the ability to use this in its negotiations with Congress as a, as a constitutional doctrine, even if it's something that the courts ultimately aren't going to accept. So there's this sort of strange disconnect between the interactions between Congress and the executive branch and the doctrines that are useful there in these sort of back and forth negotiations and then what the courts are actually going to accept down the road. And the executive branch view is, you know, if there's not a presidential opinion that rejects this, this is still a fair constitutional theory to assert against Congress. Yeah, so let me just say that I I wasn't expecting that the Justice Department was going to change its position, but I think it could have done some more acknowledgement of the fact that they have not been successful in court and either given some explanation as to why they think that those district court decisions were were wrong um, or perhaps expressed a willingness to, to reconsider in the appropriate case, perhaps expressed um, a willingness to revisit the, I think, very poorly reasoned or not really reasoned at all, um, extension of this doctrine to impeachment, which is inconsistent with the, with the argument that they're... So the Justice Department has, in this, in this filing, has talked about uh, testimonial immunity as perhaps being better explained as an, as an implied limitation on Congress's legislative investigatory power. So rather than being some sort of implicit immunity that attaches to these uh, White House aides who don't have any constitutional status to begin with, they didn't even exist, as Jonathan was mentioning, uh, until the 1930s, that you would really say that that there's uh, the implied uh, legislative power of investigation because it and it doesn't reach the president, at least that's the theory, uh, it should also be interpreted as not reaching people in the president's immediate orbit. That sort of reinterpretation of the immunity doctrine can't explain why there would be immunity in or that were implied limitation in cases where impeachment is, is involved, because that's not an implied power, that is an express constitutional power. 
And the idea that if you're going to reinterpret the immunity in that way, you also have to go back and look at this uh, extension of immunity to the impeachment context. So I want to turn back to what this filing tells us about the various contempt prosecutions that are and aren't happening. And Jonathan, you and Rahini wrote in Lawfare about how this filing shapes our understanding of the decision to prosecute Navarro, but not Scavino and Meadows. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So as I said uh, sort of long ago now at the beginning of the podcast, the the file before the filing, I tended to think that you know, even though there were arguments against it, the the department had just concluded that Meadows and Scavino were sort of closer presidential aides who were being asked to testify about things that related to their official duties because they had sort of a broader swath of duties. And so that it was really this immunity that was driving the Justice Department to not to prosecute Meadows and Scavino, but to prosecute Navarro, who had a, a different kind of role in the White House, a narrower role. And his subpoena asked more about his interactions with Bannon and private parties so that maybe that was the distinction and that they thought Meadows and Scavino were immune, but Navarro not. But once the filing came out, it's clearly that the department doesn't consider Meadows to be immune. And so it's really hard to understand why, uh, if Meadows is not immune, of course, Scavino wouldn't be immune as well. So it's really hard to understand why they would not be prosecuted and Navarro would. And the only thing that I could really come up with was this, I mean, there's, there's a lot of practical problems, right? The hassles and uh, of proving these things and dealing with Meadows making arguments about immunity in his case and Scavino, but those are all true of Navarro as well. And so the only real distinction seems to be, well, there's probably two, but the legal distinction seems to be that, that both Meadows and Scavino were instructed, uh, at least in some sense, by Trump's counsel to assert any applicable immunities. Uh, and Navarro was not. So Navarro never got a letter from Trump's counsel that said, you know, assert any immunities that you might have. And uh, the department has said that there's not a good faith exception to contempt. But Bannon has raised all kinds of due process problems by saying, look, I was doing what the government told me to do. So the government can't prosecute me. And the government, in the first instance, being President Trump, he's saying, President Trump told me to assert these privileges. I was. He's a, he's a government, he has government authority, so the government can't turn around and prosecute me. And that, that, that violates due process for them to do that. And his argument, I think, was rejected, and the department decided to move forward anyway because he wasn't a government employee. But I think my view is that Meadows and Scavino were close enough to immunity that when they were instructed by Trump to assert any immunities, the department was concerned that they would have a valid sort of due process argument to say, here's a former president who, even in the department's filing, they admit might have some authority to assert immunity and to direct someone not to comply, who has directed them to do this, and that they were relying on that direction. And so it violates due process for the government to then prosecute them for doing something that the government had approved in the form of President Trump. And Navarro doesn't have that. So that so my, that's and so it's, it gets into a lot of nuance and a lot of sort of legal technicality. But the bottom line was Meadows and Scavino, even though they're not immune, now they know. But when they were charged with contempt, they didn't know, and they had this direction from the former president, and so that gives them a valid defense. Whereas Navarro never got an instruction, never even mentioned the word immunity. He was only talking about privilege, 
And so he doesn't have that defense. Mike, I want to turn to you, but before I do, I think it's worth noting also, uh, Jonathan, since you and Rahini published that piece, there's been a filing in Navarro's criminal case, a motion to compel discovery by Navarro, where Roger Parloff, also at Lawfare, pointed out uh, Navarro seems to say that he ignored the subpoena from the January 6th committee because three months before that, Trump issued a public statement in response to a different subpoena issued to Navarro by a different committee on different subjects and had told the public that he was instructing Navarro to invoke executive privilege, not testimonial immunity. And Navarro says in this filing, oh, well, you know, I I confused those two concepts, but I was, and this is a quote, a layman who at that time was not represented by counsel. So I, I think that may further add to the theory that you've kind of spun out there, Jonathan. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, the there is a there is a letter, right, a specific letter from Trump's counsel to Meadows and to Scavino that says, assert any immunities that are applicable. And, and Navarro is pointing to a public statement about a different subpoena that doesn't even mention immunity. Uh, so he is, he has, there's a, a very big distinction between what kind of instruction Meadows and Scavina received versus the quote unquote instruction that Navarro is now pointing to. And I think that is, to me, that's the, the distinction that, that has led to the prosecution of Navarro. So, Mike, let me let me turn to you. What do you make of how this filing speaks to these different prosecutions or failures to prosecute? Yeah, so I I, I think I agree with Jonathan that 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 may very well be the distinction that they're drawing between Navarro on the one hand and Meadows and Scavino on the other. I'm not sure that I find it a very persuasive distinction. And it seems to me they've They've created a problem for themselves by drawing these very fine lines. So, for example, if the, I'm not sure I've seen the exact language of the Meadows, the letter that Trump's counsel said, sent to Meadows, but I believe it was similar to the one that was sent to Bannon. And basically, it just says you should assert any uh, immunities that you have but it doesn't say what immunities you have or what immunities specifically that the president or the former president wants them to assert. So to allow that to be used as a barrier to prosecution when it's not even clear that Trump was directing them to not appear seems odd to me. Uh, there, it seems to me they're really bending over backwards to to not bring these these prosecutions. And then I suspect that will cause them problems in the Navarro prosecution because he'll argue, uh, why are you treating me differently? I'm, I'm in the same situation just because I didn't have a fancy lawyer that you, you're, you're, I'm the one who has to be prosecuted for doing the exact same thing uh, as these other guys did. I don't know if they'll be able to get that into evidence, but I'm sure they'll, they'll make an effort. Yeah, Navarro has he's he's made this argument right that this is a selective prosecution and they're targeting me and and he's I think he's already sought discovery on this question about why I was prosecuted and and Meadows and Scavino were not and whether the judge allows it we'll see but I as you said earlier Mike there there are writings in the Justice Department whether they're in the criminal division and declination meta, uh, memos about the defenses or whether there was an this was came from OLC. And so I'm sure Navarro is going to try to get those out. And, uh, you know, selfishly, I hope he does. So we get some more information about it. But 
uh, he is making this argument that he's being targeted uh, and prosecuted in comparison with Meadows and, and Scavino. And I think the way the Justice Department has set this up is they're creating uncertainty for future cases uh, as well, because they now have a doctrine that says if you're a former advisor to a former president, you don't have absolute immunity, but you do have qualified immunity and you maybe can be instructed by the former president to not testify, which the current president, they suggest, can overrule, but they leave some wiggle room that there may be extraordinary circumstances where even the for, even the current president can't overrule the, uh, the former president. And so how is anyone going to know which direction to follow or what to do? Uh, and then how are they going to prosecute anybody who just says, well, you know, I was doing my best to follow this ambiguous guidance that the justice department has provided. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true with one exception, but I, you know, I will say there's nothing the justice department likes more than some wiggle room uh, because they always want to, you know, always want to keep something behind just in case they need it down the road. Uh, Very seldom are they going to, you know, make an absolute statement when they don't have to. So I think you see that uh, in this filing and especially what you're talking about, this idea that, can the former president direct or not? It says extraordinary circumstances, but what does that even mean? So there's a lot of uncertainty, but I do think there is there is one thing that this filing makes certain, and I think that was intentional, and that is that no none of the aides to President Trump have immunity in the context of January 6th. So I, I think it's it, given Meadows' position, given you know he's the chief of staff, this makes clear that nobody associated with you know, President Trump as, a, as an advisor would be able to claim immunity in the context of the January 6th investigation. And so clear that I think if the January 6th committee were to subpoena Meadows again, and even if he received a direction that he would, if he refused to comply, the Justice Department would prosecute next time because it is now clear that he has no defense on immunity and they even say this, it doesn't matter about the instruction or not, because there's no immunity to instruct him to assert. So I think they've made it clear that January 6th, in the context of the January 6th investigation, nobody has immunity, but everything past that is uh, remains shrouded in this mysterious doctrine. Let's leave it there. Jonathan, Mike, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.